Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Robin Sai, a general partner at VMG Partners. Welcome, Robin. Thanks for having me. So Robin, you know, BMG is one of these firms that I think, you know, has a lot of buzz attached to it. And, you know, you, you were involved with Drunk Elephant, you're involved with Briogeo. So many of the cool beverage and, and food brands and wellness brands out there are, you know, you're a part of. So I'm just wondering, how did you first come aboard and how you got, how did you get here? So I guess personally, um, I I honestly didn't really have this great blueprint is the truth. Um, I was one of those guys who I went through college without really understanding what investment banking or consulting were. I had no idea. Um, I saw a bunch of my friends who were all dressed up in suits from time to time, and I didn't really figure out what they were doing. I was really more focused on working with kids. Um, that's kind of what I spent my summers doing, really more focused on uh teaching, counseling, things of that nature. So I was actually a middle school, uh, a public school teacher uh, for for junior high school kids coming out, coming out of college. That was the deal. Um, and then after that, I ended up um, joining uh, the Boston Consulting Group, you know, barely knew anything about business. I was able to work with some really, really phenomenal people and really started to kind of work within their consumer and retail practice. Really loved that. Uh, went to business school and then joined VMG. This is back in 2009. So, you know, our first fund was we had an, our first one was an 07 vintage fund that we really didn't start to invest until 08. So it was super, super early days at that point. And most people don't really think of private equity as, you know, a startup, but that's honestly kind of what we were. So tell me, you know, obviously 2009, you know, coming in that early to the game at VMG, like you probably helped very much establish what your investing thesis was at the company. What would you say it was back then? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think as a first time fund, you're really more defined by what works and what doesn't. And you can have all these great theses at that point in time, but it's a lot easier to actually connect the dots when you're actually looking backwards than when you're looking forward. So what I would say is what we were good at is we were really good at working with founders and you know, uh, just something that was part of our DNA. I think it prob- probably also came from just you know the fact that we were a startup as well. So we could really empathize uh, with what people were going through. Um, you know, we found that we were very good with um, brands and sort of having a, a certain gut in terms of what consumers really cared about and where they were headed. Um, and I think, you know, we're really good about sort of thinking about consumables, right? Things that actually have repeat purchase um, and really sort of understanding that and, and identifying early um, groups that you know, had a, or brands that actually had a very loyal consumer base at the outset. Candidly, what we weren't very good at is we were, we weren't really good at durables. Um, you know, we had a couple of businesses that were more sort of fashion oriented and, you know, that is, that is, you know, a, I think that there are some great investors in the space who've done incredibly, incredibly well. It just, they weren't us and we didn't, we didn't do as well in that space. And, and I, I think, we had enough, hopefully, you know, um, candor within our shop to be able to say that, you know, that might not be a place for us to double down. Back then, you know, were you thinking about, you know, beauty, wellness, food, beverage, the way that you're thinking about it now, or was it just happened to be that these 
categories seem to fit together, you know, like while we're connecting the dots here several years later. It's it's interesting. I, I would say that because VMG is a very focused shop, um, all we do is invest in you know branded consumer goods, especially on the growth side. We have two funds. We have a, a growth fund, and then we also have a catalyst fund, which is much more focused in tech. Um, but let's just say, stay on the growth side for now. Um, because we only invest in a couple of verticals, it's not like we're actually going around changing or chasing theses all the time. Um, our MO is really more about investing deeply within the ecosystem of the categories that we're investing in. So that's food and beverage, beauty and personal care, the wellness space, alcohol and spirits, and the pet space. So it really is just having a super, super deep knowledge of who the stakeholders are, you know, what, what makes them tick. Um, and then for us, it really is really, we play the long game on trying to actually elevate that ecosystem, make people feel good, make their lives a little bit easier. And ultimately there's good karma in that. And I think we end up identifying and working with some really, really great founders and brands. So it's it's less to do with sort of a, a thesis driven approach. I think ultimately, as we look backwards, you know, what we kind of found is that we gravitated more towards better for you in just across all categories. And that served us really well. Um, but I, I don't think that that necessarily was sort of a broad stroke thesis that we were we were chasing. It was really, we really want to get to know these categories well and the players in the category. And then we're going to follow where consumers go. And, you know, we're, we're going to be pretty sort of agnostic of sort of our, our own our own beliefs. But obviously we have a gut, um, but we really want to follow consumers. Tell me a little bit about, you know, this better for you space, because I feel like I hear investors talking about that a lot now and the conscious consumer, but you were very ahead of that when you think about, you know, drunk elephant with the clean skincare proposition, um, even Sunbum in some ways and um, Brioche with clean hair care. So, you know, what does that mean now? Because obviously the space has evolved so rapidly and the expectation of what clean is or what wellness is, um, is so much higher than it was, you know, 15 years ago. So wondering what you think about that. I think it's constantly evolving is the truth and it's constantly being defined and redefined. And I think that that is, you know, a challenge and it's also an opportunity. Um, you know, I think one of the amazing things that, you know, Tiffany at drunk elephant did was she kind of kind of drew a line in the sand and said, this is what clean means for me. Right. And she was very clear about what it was and what it wasn't. And I think that that resonated with consumers. And we kind of look across the board at a number of the businesses that we work with, whether it's Sunbum, uh, whether it's Bill over at Spindrift, right? Like he's defining what clean means for him within the beverage space. So I do think that, you know, we're oftentimes delving into categories that are still a little amorphous. You know, they haven't been clearly defined by strategics yet. Uh, and they're still in the process of being, de you know, defined by trailblazing founders and more, I would say, bleeding or cutting edge consumers. And, you know, we just have to keep our ear to the ground and understand, you know, what, what do these terms actually mean and how, how quickly are they evolving? Because especially in the categories that we play in, consumers are not, you know, shy about telling us, you know, how, what, what this all means for them. Um, because I do think that they see many of the brands that we work with as badges, you know, it's part of their identity. If they want to associate with whatever it might be, you know, it's very meaningful for them as well. And if we don't live up to a promise, you know, I think that's, 
you know, it's a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? I, I, it does let people down. So it's, I would just say long-winded way of saying it's, it's, it's always evolving. And honestly, that's part of what we look to founders to do is to help us kind of put some guardrails up. And if it's compelling to us, if it makes sense, um, if we feel like that's where consumers are headed, we get really excited. So it sounds like a little bit of this is about, you know, a first, first to market in a way, like, you know, we said with uh, Drunk Elephant and Tiffany, you know, you lead the beauty and personal care business at VMG, Robin. I'm wondering from your perspective, like what's interesting to you? Because it seems like we are being inundated with brands all of the time. Some of them saying the same thing as somebody else. You know, it's, <laughs> everything is interesting. I, I, I know that's a cop-out, um, but- It's totally a cop-out. It's a Come total cop-out. <laughs> I, 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 I think it's just, as an investor, I think you just are, hopefully you're just intellectually curious. And if someone wants to go on a limb and start something, because being a founder sucks. I mean, it's just the kind of, it's, it's glamorous for some, but once you kind of dig into it and if, you know you spend enough time with founders- it can be incredibly rewarding, but it's insanely hard. Probably one of the hardest things that you can actually go and put yourself through. And for a lot of people, it, you know, or for some people, it's elective, right? So you're kind of like, wow, I'm, I'm really doing this to myself. So I kind of start from a perspective of someone's choosing to do this, right? And kind of walking on glass to make it happen. There's got to be something, a kernel of something in whatever it is that they're doing that is interesting. So if you start there, you know, I don't, you know, we're talking about beauty and personal care. I'm agnostic in terms of category. Don't, doesn't matter if your color, uh, if your skincare, if your body, you know, to a certain extent, there's wellness as well. There's so many different places where you can play. Um, it, it doesn't really matter to be totally honest. I think it's really more kind of what is your point of difference and have you been able to actually find your tribe of people, however small, that really want to actually talk about you and be your advocates? I think that's that's been a big, you know, that's what we're always looking for. You know, some of the brands that you have in your portfolio today, like Perfect Diary, you know, everybody is, when you think about makeup and you think about data and storytelling, like they are, you know, ahead of, way ahead of the curve. What can you tell me about a brand like that and and how it, you know, kind of stems from a market where that we're very much learning from, you know, here in the US when it comes to beauty. That's an interesting one, right? I think um, very different type business models. Um, I think it's, you know, as if, if you're a founder and you're thinking about this, it's much more about building backwards uh, of kind of what are you trying to accomplish? I think for many of our brands, they want to create a singular brand. They want it to be deeply meaningful, authentic, and you know, they may not know exactly if they're going to sell or how they're going to get liquidity and all that, but it's a deeply personal journey and whoever it ends up with matters a lot, right? Because they really want that legacy to remain, you know, even potentially after they are out of the business. So that's sort of path number one. Uh, and it's a very, it's a very difficult journey in its own right. Uh, David at you know Yatsen, which is the, the the parent company of Perfect Diary, I think his dream was very very ambitious in the sense that he really wanted to shake up the beauty industry overall, and so he wasn't thinking about Perfect Diary as a singular brand. You know that was sort of his Trojan horse. Um, what he wanted to build was a platform, and so you know what makes that business tick. 
you know, uh, is more the fact that they are func- they're they're excellent functionally at many things. Um, you know, they're very very good at their go to market strategy in Asia. You know, um, they're very very good at you know thinking about working with KOLs. You know, to a certain extent, they don't leave a lot to chance on that front in the sense that you know many of the functions that they're performing are things that are done in-house and they have tremendous amounts of data and uh, in, in when, when they're actually making decisions as well. So it's a little bit of a different, it's apples and oranges. You know, I would say that for many of our businesses, you know, they're really focused on building the singular iconic brand. Um, I think David at, at Yachtson, he's, I think he brand matters, but I think what his, his end goal was, was really to create functional excellence. And and that looks a lot more like a strategic, to be totally honest, right? It's almost like a chassis, um, and and you build the chassis, and then you can kind of think about brands as things that you're actually able to kind of put on that chassis over time. Was that kind of more of a not risky, but a different kind of bet for you? Because you know it wasn't necessarily about a singular person or the storytelling or this ethos that you know Tiffany had. It's definitely a different bet, um, and you know, a different bet in a different in a different country. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, it, if anything, the thing that I thought was always so interesting about that was people talk. It's it's. I think a lot of people have aspirations to be the next big strategic and beauty, and there's always dialogue about. Why not another one? You know, you've got the big players, and they've been entrenched uh, for a long time, and they do a lot of things really, really well. Um, I think that it was a little bit of a contrarian bet to think that something like that, the next strategic, would come from a territory or an area that you know people weren't really watching as as much. So it wasn't so much about this up and coming, crazy, fast growing brand. You know, it was much more about you know, a group that was quietly building up functional excellence, right? And then being able and building that foundation. Um, and I think that the business kind of crept up on people a bit um, because they were more focused about sort of the the nuts and bolts of their business as opposed to, you know, pushing, you know, a romanticized brand or couple of brands. I, mean, I think that'll come later. So think is happening, I guess, from the founder perspective or the storytelling perspective today, because um, it seems like, you know, like we said, going back to what we said a second ago about the sameness that exists, like what is something that kind of does get your attention? It's a great, great question. Um, I, I would say, um, you know, you've got to be able to answer the question of kind of why you a little bit. Right, like wh- why you? Why this brand? Like, how is it going to actually go and stand out? Um, you know, it, it's interesting. I would say that, you know, our best founders are folks who don't really spend as much time looking around. To be totally honest, um, they're not as, as easily influenced by what's happening around them. They're not as easily influenced even by stakeholders, right? Whether that might be, you know, I'd say, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, members of their own team, sometimes retailers, sometimes even their own investors. Like they've got this deep DNA and gut on what their brand is and where it's headed. And that's not to say that they don't take advice to heart. They absolutely do. Um, but, you know, it, it does come from within. 
Um, it's not really done with market studies and things of that, and, and like white space analysis and things of that nature. It, it some maybe like a kernel of it starts there, but that's really not what it is. It, it, it comes from a more personal place. That's kind of what we're looking for. Um, you know, I, I think that you know if a founder's got that, that's something that you can kind of you know you can really build on. So tell me, as a partner, and kind of on that advice piece, you know. It seems like a lot of other private equity shops out there are, you know, saying they're going to get them into Sephora, they're going to get them into Altar, they're going to help them scale in QVC, XYZ, XYZ, XYZ. So I'm wondering from your perspective, like how many of these in founders or businesses that you look like are asking for that, are asking for that kind of, you know, direction or introductions, especially when, you know, it seems like today you could do everything like on a DM or on LinkedIn and, right. and messages. I would say a lot to be totally honest, because I, I think you know we're a little different in the sense that you know we're not, especially on the on the growth fund. You know, we're we're not a venture fund in the sense that we take a bunch of swings. And you know, for us, everything that we touch, we really we really want and and expect that it'll work. Right? It, it's not a it, it's not the 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 model where a couple of things actually absolutely run and it carries a fund. For us, it really is much more, we bat for average, right? We want to make sure that everything works. And so our reputation, I'd say, is we're a group that actually gets really in the weeds with you. Now that can be good or bad is the truth, right? It depends on the founder. Um, and, and then I kind of always go back to the founder and be like, hey, this is a very personal choice. If you're going to bring on a partner, you kind of need to know what you want. And if you're selecting, you know, VMG to work with, it should be because you want you want our, you know, our partnership. Uh, you want us to actually get in the trenches with you, uh, especially in that first year, right? And so that can be a variety of different things um, that that we work on with you. Um, but you know, people asking for introductions, advice, talent, you know, all of these things. That's very par for the course, and we feel extremely, extremely privileged to be sort of at this sitting at this vantage point where we're able to actually potentially deliver on those things. And I think I'm hopeful. And I think something that we preach at our shop is that we're not just doing that for our own portfolio. I think that, you know, part of what hopefully is, has, has been our reputation is that we want to elevate the entire ecosystem. We want to be able to actually do that for, you know, folks who are at, you know, who are starting out and we have no chance of investing in, or even to a certain extent, I think we've got a lot of great relationships with, you know, uh, with, with brands that have taken investment from others as well. Uh, it's, it's, if you're kind of, you know, if we elevate the playing field, I think everyone stands to gain and, you know, that's, that's where we want to spend our time. How would you say that kind of came to life even more last year during COVID? Because it seems like operationally everybody like had no idea what they were doing at the beginning. Yeah, uh, and and I, I don't want to sound like we have a crystal or had a crystal ball. We absolutely did not. Um, we also had a lot of you know we we had to do a lot of work, uh, a lot of soul searching as well. Um, maybe I'll say this. Um, first of all, we wanted to make sure that everybody was healthy and safe, right? That that's a big part of um of what happened last year. And you know, that was for our own team, but it was also for our portfolio and then for the broader ecosystem. And so I think that we spent a lot of time just thinking about that because there was a lot, it's kind of crazy to think about. This is almost a little over a year ago, but there was so much unknown at that point. We just didn't know what we were doing, right? Like 
the information was scattered um, because we have investments in Asia. I do think that that helped. So that really sort of gave, we, we felt like there was more weight potentially than others behind what we were starting to hear. Um, so, so that was sort of one piece. I think the second is, you know, our businesses, because we are in primarily the consumable space, um, ended up doing quite well last year, right? Because there were, there's a lot of shifting of, um, consumerism from, you know, on-premise to actually consuming things in your home. And we do a lot in obviously food and beverage and wellness, um, even within sort of beauty and personal care, a lot of our investments are more in, you know, uh, things that are more about self-care, right? Skin care, body care, things of that nature, hair care, people continue to all do all those things. Um, so, you know, our, our general portfolio ended up doing quite well. I, you know, we counseled folks to actually be really, really careful with cash. You know, we had remembered what had happened back in the day and, you know, sort of that 08, 09 timeframe, you know, where liquidity ended up being really, really scarce. It didn't happen this time, but we remembered that that's kind of, that that was, you know, a phenomenon. So we wanted to make sure that folks were prepared for that. But we quickly came to realize that, you know, our businesses after, taking precautionary measures, reforecasting and all that, they were actually going to be in a pretty good spot by and large. And then, you know, what we really ended up spending our time talking about as a fund was, you know, we are set up and we have the resources to really help a lot of businesses out there. So go out and check in on uh, with everybody. You know, we're not looking necessarily to do a deal today. I think there's a lot of unknown. There's a lot of you know, a lot of folks are, are scared and, and don't really have all the answers. We don't entirely, but we potentially have some, you know, some tips that we might be able to provide. And, you know, I think the mantra at that point in time was, this is really when you make a name for yourself, right? If our reputation is that we're actually going to be good for the ecosystem and help build it up, like we got to walk the walk. And we, you know, this might not be the best time for us to go and deploy capital or what we had no idea at that point in time. But it is the time for us to actually go answer questions about how to get PPP loans. You know, our our portfolio didn't do that, but you know, we at least got smart about it because we were talking to so many founders who were struggling with that. You know, um, they're struggling with how do we think about sort of staffing up a factory? You know, when you know you had COVID cases start popping up, um, and and so on and so forth. So that was the challenge, and and sort of the um, that's what we really wanted our team to focus on. Right was just kind of making sure that we were there and we could be seen as being a true, true resource during a very, like a very real time of need, and and not necessarily just a capital resource. Tell me a little bit about that playing the long game strategy when you know there's so many new investors in the space. It seems like you know everywhere I look, there's somebody new, there's some new fund, there's somebody willing to go like lower down on the stream, smaller amount of sales or emerging brands. So I'm wondering like how you're able to kind of hold those two things because the market has gotten more competitive and people are willing to throw money almost at anything, but you want to make sure that you've developed this relationship. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's what we talk about all the time is, you know, we're in this for the long haul. Um, I think there have been Lots of incredibly successful funds that have that kind of started out in our space, and they did well because I actually do think the risk reward is actually very very strong if you double down and really understand the ecosystem. I think it's a you know there there's good supply, there's good demand for kind of the what we're offering here. 
but then I, th- I think a lot of funds then just kind of move on um, because you know they have the ability to, and 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 you know it might be some some degree of human nature, right? Um, we've chosen really not to do that. You know, we love what we do. We love working with you know founder entrepreneurs, um, and you know if we get too unwieldy, it gets harder to work with businesses of a certain size. Is the truth? Um, and so, you know, for us, I would say because we know that we want to stay here for a long time, we're happy to actually play the long game. And it's actually, it's, it's very, it's a bit of our our own flywheel. It's super basic, but it's, if we're actually doing the right thing, if we're talking and if we're helping an operator out, if we're helping a founder out, you know, maybe we invest in their business, maybe not. Maybe we invest in the next business that they do, but ultimately we're actually kind of investing our time and dollars behind building those relationships. And we don't need to chase a deal that we need to get done tomorrow. And I I recognize that that's a big part of that is because we're lucky, you know, we've, we've got sort of a, a bit I I'd hope that we have a a good reputation and, and track record. And so we're not, we don't need that quick win now. Um, you know, if you're a first time fund, I absolutely get it, right? You got to show some wins and, you know, we have a little bit less pressure to do that. And so we're able to actually spend more of that time, you know, building up and cultivating relationships that'll sort of, you know, really benefit sort of our next cohort of founders. And so we're always kind of playing, a, you know, further out um, than some others. Uh, and I don't think it's rocket science. I think it's more just the fact that, you know, we're lucky um, that we have the time and the resources to be able to do that. And if we keep doing it, you know, that's our moat as well, right? Like it's it's really kind of hard to break if, you know, we have this reputation of, you know, we have sold the most businesses of any, you know, consumer fund to strategics over the last 15 years. So I, I think that track record is an important one. Um, and it's something that I think founders, you know, truly care about. Tell me a little bit about that strategic piece. Like when do you help kind of a business say, this is the right time to sell, or you could hold out and, you know, get another strategic involved, or, you know, this is a better partner for you. You know, there's so many different players right now happening in beauty, whether it's, you know, the Unilevers who are trying to ramp up their prestigious assortment or even like an SC Johnson in some cases. So I'm wondering how you're able to like kind of advise in that front. It's much more art than science is the truth. And it all starts with the founder. Um, More you know, what are they building for? You know, what does a win look like for them? And it's not a conversation that we start at the end, right? It's a conversation that we start right at the beginning. So we're all kind of clear eyed about where we're headed and what a win could look like. Not saying that, you know, that path doesn't change. Uh, Timing changes depending upon the performance of the business. Lots of things can change, but at least you've got a general guideline on what we all consider to be success. So that's kind of established upfront. But as you continue to build on, um, you know, it's it's a lot of different things. You know, I think depending on the business that you're in, you know, you're it's less to do with time. It's much more to do with what you've been able to accomplish, right? There are some sort of key metrics, whether it's financial, uh, whether it's operating, whether it's you know from a distribution perspective, you're checking the box on these things. 
And I do think that we've got good reputation and, and a good connection with strategics. We kind of know what they're looking for as well. And that evolves too, right? That changes over time, but we're trying to still, you know, stay close to them to understand that whatever it is that we're helping a founder build is something that's going to have a lot of, uh, a lot of demand later on. Um, so there's no sort of clear cut answer to it. I would say it's different sort of vertical to vertical. It's different founder to founder. Um, you know, but you know, within each one of these categories, there's a sweet spot, right? You should be of about this size, growing at this rate, with this level of gross margin, with this so, level of EBITDA. Robin, be a little bit more specific since we are talking about beauty and wellness, and there are sure. so many founders listening. When you're thinking about, you know, if you're really acquisition ready, or if you want to potentially even IPO, maybe like what are what are we talking about here? Goalposts keep changing, but you know, if we could build not necessarily the perfect business, but a you know a very very solid business, you know, I'd love to actually see something that is, you know, has got sort of a flight path and a real flight path to call it close to a hundred million dollars in sales. Not, I'm not talking run rate. I'm talking you know more. You know, it's not sort of a, a huge leap to go from an LTM number to to, to that hundred. Um, you know, within beauty, again, it kind of depends on where you play, whether it's prestige or if you're more mass. Um, but you know, if you're if you're prestige, you know, the benefits of of that category is that you do you do have some great gross margins, and so and those are hard to fix. So if you don't actually have those, let's just say that they're in the high sixties, low seventies, you know, that's kind of where you want where you want to pinpoint things. Um, and then finally, you know, at a certain scale, if you're already of that size where you're getting close to a hundred, you know, you're no longer totally subscale. You should be making some money. Um, and you know, from an EBITDA perspective, I think I'd love to see something at, let's call it 15% plus EBITDA margins. So it's a very traditional business that I'm painting. It's not necessarily one where, you know, we're going for a land grab and it's all about volume, obviously, this to me is, you know, for a prestige business that's built sort of in a more traditional manner uh, with sort of the distribution that we would typically see a smattering of, you know, best retailers with your own.com, you know, that would be sort of the shape of a business that I think a lot of strategics could get excited about, at least just on the financial side of things. And then finally, maybe I'd throw out this out too. You just don't necessarily want to be overly distributed or overly skewed, right? I just feel like that complicates matters. Um, you always want to make sure that you've got, you know, you've got enough room so that the, the next guy is going to look smart, right? That made a good choice and, and, and things are continuing on a, a very nice path. Tell me from your perspective, you know, what you think about this whole conversation of like D to C versus store presence, all of that. And, you know, this consolidation, I think that's happening in the prestige space, especially as Sephora goes into Kohl's and Ulta goes into Target and essential retailers become more important. You know, I, honestly, I think it's, again, it's, there was a time and I'd say it's not even that long ago, you know, even just 10 years ago where I thought brands could actually more influence consumers versus the other way around, right? In the sense that where you could kind of dictate where you were sold, and that would actually a lot, a lot of you know questions would get answered simply by just doing that. I think at this point, you know, where you're sold is more a function of where consumers want to engage with you, 
So you don't really get that choice. Like it used to be that you could choose, in my opinion now, you know, depending on what your brand stands for and what it is, consumers will let you know how they want to actually either, you know, figure out where to get information, talk about your brand and eventually buy your brand. So I do think that there is, you know, it's different by brand. It's different by company. You know, do I think that every every business needs to be omni-channel? You know, no, but most probably, right? But I, I think it's more about understanding who that consumer is. Um, so perspective for, 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 for me, at least, is that, you know, these are all still branded consumer goods businesses, right? Just because you actually sell most of your business, you know, most of your products on your own website, uh, or through Amazon or through Sephora.com or something like that, it doesn't really make you a tech business, in my opinion. Um, I think you're still very much a CPG business that, you know, I feel like it's, it's, I don't want to simplify it too much, but, you know, back in the day, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out Walmart, right? Oh my God. How do you do business with you? you got everyday low price. Like how do you, it's crazy. And then, you know, we had the onset of Costco and, you know, those guys can really build a brand, but at the same time, they're really about discovery and treasure hunting. So, you know, they don't always kind of stick with brands forever too. So it's something to think about, but, you know, another really tough nut to crack and then Amazon and then, you know, D to C. So it's, I think it's variations of the same story. Um, These are all different channels. They aren't. I think most of the businesses that we work with, not all, but most are, they're CPG businesses that were that are powered by technology and not the other way around. When you said a second ago about Walmart and Costco, do you think that's kind of happening right now with the Kohl's and the Target example? You know, it is about discovering those environments and, you know, what the next big thing is and, you know, maybe number seven is great today, but, you know, is mented the next big brand there. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, no, I think that, because you're actually smashing retail concepts together, you know, there are going to be a lot of intended and unintended consequences. Um, I, I kind of love the fact that there is more volatility there because, you know, you're probably actually, you know, you're bringing brands into the forefront uh, of probably consumer segments that haven't been as familiar with that brand, if that makes sense, right? That That's the whole idea here. Um and I do think that brands are just going to have to be nimble and continue to listen carefully on, you know, who they're actually, not necessarily who they think they're marketing to, but like who's actually buying your product. Um, you know, those sometimes can be two different things and you just got to, you have to be sort of, you know, clear eyed about that. You know, um, there's the potentially, you know, it's, 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 a sometimes it's a marketing exercise, but I think you always need to really kind of look at through your, look at your sell through data to understand where your product's actually pulling. Absolutely. Robin, when you think about emerging brands, you know, in that perspective, you know, you guys also went, you know, into a smaller business yourselves last year with Necessaire, you know, obviously it fits into some of the same patterns that you see at Drunk Elephant or Briogeo, but it's a much smaller business. Like what were you thinking there and why did you decide to invest? So Necessaire is an investment out of our Catalyst Fund. Um, and I think a lot of that, though, had similar themes that we saw um, with a, a number of our other beauty businesses, right? Uh, this idea, it's, I think, first of all, it's a beautiful brand. Um, I think that's, you know, that goes without saying. Um, the second is we love the people around it. You know, the earlier you go, the, the more it is a bet on people, right? Because there's just less 
there's less of a business to diligence and a less of a business to, to actually kind of lean on. It really is about who's involved. Um, and I think Randy there is exceptional. Um, she knows the prestige beauty business inside and out. And so, um, you know, Necessaire started online, um, but that's not necessarily, you know, the only place where it's going to play. And she always knew that, you know, and at this point you can actually find the product at Sephora too. And and so I would say that a lot of, a lot, a lot of the reason why we will bet early on businesses is because, it, you know, the business shares a lot of the DNA with other businesses that we've actually um, had success with. And also we feel like we uniquely can help, right? Like, I think that's a really, really big part of the equation is we need to figure, we need to feel like we can really add something to the table or bring something to the table um, in order for us to actually double down and say, Hey, you know, you should partner with us. And that's a business where we felt like we, we were, you know, we had the resources and, and some of the experience to at least help. A few more questions for you, Robin. You know, last year, you guys doubled down on this idea of partnership, I think, with COVID and what we were talking about just a second ago. But you were also one of the first and only funds that really kind of spoke out, you know, in support of Black Lives Matter against racial injustice. You have many female founded founded businesses in your portfolio, as well as minorities. So was that, you know, when you think about marketing and when you think about what people a lot of brands were being called out for performative marketing. Like, why did you feel like that was necessary for you to kind of be loud and proud about that? Honestly, that was just internal. You know, we don't have, you know, a marketing team. <laughs> we're not, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're what, what may look like a, you know, a, a larger financial institution is really made up of, let's call it, we've got about 30 investment and operating professionals. Right. And two thirds of that team is either female and or ethnically diverse. So I don't think that it was, you know, it wasn't sort of this grand design. I think that it was just VMG as a fund is one thing. And then we as individual people are another. And as individual people who care deeply about what we do and who spend a lot of time kind of doing what we do, we felt like it was really important for us to say something is the truth, right? And that's just internal. Then you look outside and, you know, over the past three years, you know, I would say right around 50% of our businesses have actually been female founded, right? So it's, it's, it's not just kind of who we work with internally, it's who we work with a little bit externally as well. Uh, where that's where we're getting our influences. That's who we're having conversations with. And so both of those groups were deeply, deeply impacted. And, and we had a lot of conversations, both informally and formally, about the topics that occurred last year and candidly are occurring today, right? Like we've spent a lot of time just this week talking about a lot of what's been going on, hate crimes, you know, uh, committed against AAPI and and what that means. And, you know, what does that mean for us individually? What does that mean for us as a fund? Um, and so I think you're going to see something from us there too. Um, but I don't really know how other funds deal with it. I can't, you know, they I don't, don't. Have, I, I don't, like I don't have do. a periscope into them, um, but we just, uh, we spend working hours talking about this and some of these conversations are deeply uncomfortable. Many of them are very personal, um, but it's a little different when the makeup of your team is is 
different, right? Is 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 diverse because um, then you know you're you're not sort of talking about things in a in a theoretical sense. You're talking about things that are actually happening to your colleagues, and I think that's really really important. And so that's that's you know it's not a it's not really branding per se or anything like that. It's much more. It matters to us. It matters to a lot of the folks that we're working with as well. And we're proud that, you know, we're proud that they're saying something. We feel a responsibility um, to be saying to, to be saying something as well. Do you wish that more in the investment community were speaking up like this? Absolutely. I mean, I think that this is one of those things where I think everyone should be talking about it. Um, it's, you know, there's so many it's so much, it's so nuanced, right? Um, and there's a tremendous amount of education that should be happening. Um, education, re-education, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that hasn't happened. And, you know, if you are in any degree of leadership position, you know, I wish, I, I really would hope that, you know, this conversation is, 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 is happening in your organization. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's deeply, deeply important you know, I think it's it's important for our team members. You know, I think it's important for founders as well. To being a founder is already deeply lonely. <laughs> um, this can make it even more so. And so, you know, we're not saying that we have any degree of solution. It's just more, you know, we want we want to know we want people to know that we stand with them. We want people to know that we are a safe place so that you can actually have this type of dialogue. Um, and we hope that others would, would, would do the same. I, I don't think this is, this is not a competition by any means. Like this is more, let's all do this because it's the right thing to do. Thank you so much, Robin. It was great having you. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. See you next week.